Bibles tonight, if you'll open them to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. We count it a great privilege to be able to come back to the Word of God tonight and study in such a wonderful book, the book of Ephesians. In the last couple of messages, we've had an opportunity to talk about the Lord's church. And the book of Ephesians is considered the premier book of the New Testament that talks to us about church doctrine, and especially about the union that we have with Christ and also the relationship that we have to one another as members of the Lord's church. Uh, We've been talking about this, but I believe the highest expression of the Lord's uh, work in this world today is through His church. I mean, this was God's plan from the very foundation of the world. The Old Testament starts out uh, looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ and also just a, a premonition, you might say, of the church itself, that the church was also coming and the establishment of the church would be made by Christ. And that tells us that it's a very important institution. It's paramount in the life of every Christian that we be a part of the Lord's church. And in order for us to do God's work in the right way, uh, we need to understand about the church. It's a very vital doctrine. And that's why I've I've spent uh, two messages and now a third talking about this subject. I believe that the Berean Baptist Church is one of the Lord's New Testament churches. And in order for us to do God's work right here in our locality, we have to have our doctrine straight. We have to believe the Word of God as God presents it to us. And I believe that our church, uh, the church is the most important organization on planet Earth. It deserves more of our time and attention than anything else that we could possibly think of. But this evening I want to talk to you about, preach again, part number three of the sermon, God's Beautiful Building. And in the second chapter here, Paul uses the metaphor of a building to represent the Lord's church. He compares that to the church. So let's stand, if you would, please, as we read God's Word. In reverence for the reading of God's Word, we want to look at the same verses that we've looked at over the past couple of weeks. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 19 is where I want to begin. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together. And those words right there, fitly framed, are very important. I'm going to come back to that in the sermon. And whom all the building fitly framed together, groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight and to be able to discuss such a great subject, to think about your church. Lord, help us as we uh, go through the message tonight that we might learn something. And we just praise your name, Lord, for uh, the opportunity that you've given us and just the blessing of being a part of your church. So we give you the praise for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. God's beautiful building. I want to take just a few minutes to review a little bit about what I've talked in the past couple of messages, and that'll help us to get our bearings for the message tonight. But first of all, I I dealt with the foundation of the church. The first point of the sermon way back a couple of weeks ago was about the, the foundation of the church. And any building has to have a proper foundation. And you might Uh, Well, imagine that a building that's so important as the Lord's church must also have the right kind of foundation. And Paul tells us here in verse number 20 of this chapter what the Lord's church is built upon. He says here that there are apostles, there are prophets, and most importantly, the Lord's church is built upon Jesus Christ himself. He is the main foundation stone. And so as we were studying about the foundation of the church, 
One of the things that we talked about is that a church must have the right founders. A true church has to have the right founders. And that means that the true church could not have been founded by any man. And it couldn't have been founded at a time that was later when the Lord Jesus Christ was here in his personal ministry. He is the founder of the church. The next thing we talked about is that a church must have the right faith. And that means that the uh, church must be built upon the doctrines of God's infallible word. Uh, The church has to have the right gospel. And of course we believe the right gospel is that Christ died for our sins. And that by having faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ and that alone is sufficient for our salvation. So the right gospel is salvation by grace through faith alone. Paul gave a warning in the book of Galatians and he said that anyone who preaches any other gospel than that gospel, he said that person needs to be accursed. And so we need to preach the right gospel. The gospel truth is the foundation of the church. Now here's the thing that I believe that we exist uh, mostly for in this world today as a church and that's to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so a church that doesn't have the right gospel and doesn't preach the right gospel could not be a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that the gospel, though, is actually the beginning point of our ministry. The gospel is, of course, how Christ died, how he was buried, how he rose again. That's important. But then there are also other doctrines that the church must stand upon that have to be right. Uh, We talked about the body of Christian faith, and that's the way that the New Testament uses the term. When we talk about all that we learn about Christ and Christianity, it's called the body of the faith. And these include things like baptism. Our doctrine of baptism must be correct. Uh, Our doctrine of what we believe about the inspiration and the infallibility of Scripture, that has to be correct. The deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, and Christ's personal return to this earth and the second coming. Those are all doctrines that need to be correct in order for us to be a true church and perpetuate the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then we go on and we think about the polity of the church. That means the government of the church. That also has to be right. A church ought to have congregational rule. There ought not to be any other head over the church other than Christ himself. We're not to have a graded ministry. We are to be an independent body. And so, again, that means that there is no earthly head over us. We, we have Christ as our head, and that's the only person that we answer to. And so the church of the Lord Jesus Christ represents his body in a particular locality. And all of those things have to be right in order for us to have a proper foundation. So that's what we talked about in the first two sermons. It was on the foundation of the church. But now let's move on to the next part of discussion. And now I want to talk to you about the framework of the church. A building has to have a proper foundation, but also what you build upon that foundation is very important. What you build is extremely important. In verse 21 of our text, Paul says, "...and whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord." And so the church has to be a building that is fitly framed. And the word fitly means closely joined together. In other words, what you build upon this foundation must have a relationship with the other parts. It has to have a relationship with everything that proceeds it. It all has to be intertwined, and everything has to have a close connection. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He said, According to the grace of God which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. 
For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so we have to build properly upon the foundation. As we start the building of the Lord's church, everything that we construct upon the foundation of Jesus Christ has to be what it's supposed to be. It has to have a relationship to that foundation. Now, those of you who know anything about the building trade... You know that after the foundation is laid, the carpenter comes along and he begins to build on that foundation. First of all, he puts down the bottom plate or the sill plate on the foundation and he begins to build. And what he builds follows the foundation. It goes right, he goes right around the foundation wall, nailing the plate down or bolting that sill plate down to the foundation. And he follows the foundation where it goes. What you don't see is somebody building a building where the plates or the bottom or the framing hangs off the foundation. It doesn't go in a different direction. It follows exactly where the foundation goes. And that's because if it doesn't, it doesn't have any support under it. And the same thing is true of the church. The church has to follow the same foundation that's laid by Christ. Because any doctrine that we might have or anything that we add that lies outside the perimeter of that foundation has no basis for it. It doesn't have anything to support it. And those, those doctrines fall to the ground and they can't stand, they can't hold up. So we have to follow the foundation. Now here's what I want you to notice about this as we talk about the framework of the church. First of all, each part is identified with the chief cornerstone. And we talked about that in regards to the foundation itself, that all the stones that are laid have a relationship to the chief cornerstone. Everything is connected to that stone. It's the chief cornerstone that sets the angle and the elevation of the walls. And when you start to build on that cornerstone, each piece of it has a relationship to that stone. I mean, the level of the walls, the, the angle that the walls take, the overall height of the walls, they all have a relationship to the foundation and to that cornerstone. And the church is the very same way. Everything that is put into the building of the church must have a relationship with that stone. Now, what am I talking about when I'm talking about the building materials of the church? What is that? It's you and me. It's people who have been saved and covenanted together to come to a particular place and to worship God and to be bonded together to work as his church. The building, the building blocks of the church are you and I. Now, Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2, verse 5. He says, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And we notice there he says, lively stones or living stones. And that's what we are. We're the building material. We're the living material of the building that's called the Lord's church. Now, if we go back to uh, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul said, take heed how you build upon this foundation. And why does he say that? Because there are many people who want to build out of the wrong materials. They want to add to this foundation wood, hay, and stubble, the Word of God says. And wood, hay, and stubble are not consistent with the foundation that's been laid. You see, the foundation is the precious Son of God. And wood, hay, and stubble are not compatible building materials. When you have such a precious foundation, you want to build something on that foundation that's like it. And so the Word of God says that what we build upon this foundation is gold and silver and precious stones. You remember when we talked about King Solomon and how Queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon? 
Solomon built a, a magnificent temple. He built a beautiful palace for himself. The temple that he built was costlier than any temple for any god that was ever built before. And when the queen of Sheba came and she saw all of it uh, that Solomon had done, she stood there in amazement as she looked at that. And she saw the gold that was in abundance. Uh, She saw the precious stones that were there. She saw costly spices. And the Bible describes the queen of Sheba this way. It says there was no more spirit in her. You know what that really means? It means just what we would commonly say. It took her breath away. It took her breath away just to look at that building. Now, if Solomon built such a beautiful temple for the Lord God, do you think that Jesus Christ would build his temple out of anything less? Would he build his church out of any less quality materials? Now, what I'm trying to say to you tonight is, this is so important how we live as Christians. It is important how we have a relationship with our church and with the Lord and with each other. You see, God's house is to be built out of the right materials. And so the beauty, the splendor, the foundation demand that you put the right materials into the building. Now, let me speak about that for just a moment. As we think about the foundation again, do you know that the foundation of a building is rarely seen? I don't know of anybody who purposely builds a building so that you can see the foundation. Anybody have a house where the foundation is the main part, the most beautiful part of your house, or the thing that's seen? That's not usually what happens. What you do at the foundation is you cover it up. You don't see it. And what is built on top of that foundation, that's the part that you look at. And you look at that to see if that's what's aesthetically pleasing. So you don't see the foundation at all. And the same thing is true in the church. We can't see the foundation. We believe that Christ is here. We know he's the foundation of our church, but we haven't actually seen him with our eyes, and there's nobody who can see Christ. But what is it that people do see when they look at the church? They see us. They see the stones that the church is built out of. They can't see the foundation. And so the only thing that's going to make it appealing to them or make it something that's pleasing to God is how we're living our lives, how this framework is built upon that foundation. So when we think about the foundation being you and me, then the beauty of the building depends on what we are. And the Berean Baptist Church will not be a beautiful building at all unless the members of the church are concerned about their daily lives and their habits and how they present themselves before other people. You've heard me say many times before that most of the world would never care to pick up a Bible and read it. I mean, how many people do you know out there lost people that really enjoy reading the Bible. They they really don't. And so the only Bible that they're ever going to read is you. The only thing they're going to know about Christ is you. And folks, let me tell you this. People out there are reading our lives every day. They're watching us closely to see what we're going to do. And the question is, are we beautiful building materials? Or are we wood, hay, and stubble? And that's an important thing for us to consider. So we have to properly identify with the cornerstone. And that means that we follow the teachings of Christ. We model our lives after Christ. Christ lives through us. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 6. The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. Now, as I said before, you want to build with the right materials. You don't want the wrong building materials in the church. And now this is where the church growth movement goes wrong. This is where the purpose-driven church movement goes wrong, because you see, that's what that's all about. It's about building a church without regard to the materials that are used. 
And so what they will do is they will go out and survey the lost, unregenerate people in their neighborhoods. And then they'll try to determine how should we tailor the church to reach those kind of people. What kind of programs do we need in the church that will reach lost people in that particular way? And so that's why you end up with rock music in your church. And that's how you end up with a multitude of Bible versions in the church and the wrong kinds of, uh, of things that pass for the scriptures themselves. That's why when you go, you don't hear any hard-hitting gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why when you go, you don't hear any standards that are preached. It doesn't make any difference what you are, because we're not going to talk about that. That's why you find that hell as a doctrine is buried down beneath some kind of lovey-dovey, God-loves-everybody type of sermon. Because they're trying to attract people, and the gospel of Christ, folks, the truth of the matter is, it repels people unless the Holy Spirit has spoken to their heart. So you're never going to reach people unless the Holy Spirit is working in that. And when you try to adjust the church to fit the world, you don't get anything but the world and the church. That's all that you get from it. And so we have to be careful how we build on this foundation. Now, that means you have to have people who are worthy. What do I mean by that? Well, I don't mean that you and I are worthy because we're not. The only way that we can be worthy is that we've been cleansed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We've been made worthy. So these are godly people. They're peculiar people, a royal priesthood, a chosen generation. That's what Peter says. These are people who are rightly related to the chief cornerstone. So I tell you what we can't do. We can't build our church out of lost people. That's why we don't have lost people singing the choir That's why lost people don't teach our Sunday school classes. And that's why when you want to teach in a Sunday school class here, you're going to have to exhibit some fruit of the Spirit in your life. Because we've got to build rightly on the foundation. Now, this is God's beautiful building. And all the world's ever going to see of Christ is what you and I are. So we better take heed, as Paul said, how we build upon the foundation. Let's be conformed and let's be transformed to be just like Christ, who's the chief cornerstone. So every part is identified with the chief cornerstone. But let's notice next of all, that each part is not identical to the other parts. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. We are to be conformed to Jesus, but that doesn't mean that all of us are identical identical with one another. Now, a right relationship has to exist between us as members of the same church, that's sure, to be sure, but, but we're not identical to one another. We can't be just like one another. When I was uh, preparing the sermon, I read something that was very interesting. I mentioned the words of Paul in verse number 21, where Paul says, all the building fitly framed together. And if you were to look this up in the Greek language, those words, fitly framed together, are actually just one word in the Greek. If you look that up, here's what you'll see. The same word used three times in that one sentence. So Paul uses just this one word to represent these three things, fitly framed together. But then there's something interesting also about this word. This word occurs only twice in the New Testament. Both times are here in the book of Ephesians. The next time you see it will be in Ephesians 4, verse number 16. But there's something still yet more interesting than that. And that is that Paul made this word up. I mean, he coined this particular word himself. The scriptures are actually the first place that this word was ever used. What does that mean to us? Well, it means that the concept is so significant. And this concept is so important and necessary that Paul didn't have a word to describe it. And so he invented a word 
that relayed what the Holy Spirit wanted him to tell us about the church. But let me tell you yet another interesting part about it. And that is that the modern translations, translations like the NIV, for instance, they ignore this word. They ignore the complete meaning of it. So what they do is they take the force of the meaning of Paul's word out of the scripture. Now, here's how they translate it. They translate it as simply joined together. Joined together is not the same thing as being fitly joined together. Why is that? Remember I said a moment ago, fitly means that there's an interrelationship. It's the same. It's close. It's cohesion. But if you just have joined together, you can be joined to something and not be anything like it at all. I mean, the Bible says don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, but you yoke up with an unbeliever, you're still joined, aren't you? But that wouldn't be the same thing as being fitly joined together. There's a difference here. So the concept of fitly joined together is different because this building has to work together. That's why we can't bring in these other elements into the church. Joined together is not enough. We have to be fitly joined together. And so here is a body that looks and acts like it belongs together. There's another reason why we ought to use a a good version of the Scriptures. Take the King James and you get the real meaning of what God had to say. But let me go back to this point again. We are fitly joined together, but all of the parts aren't identical. Now, if you look at the cults today, the cults like for all of their followers to be identical. They look just alike. I mean, they're, they're, they're all the same. I mean, they're all like mindless robots and they all follow like lemmings and, you know, right in step. But you know, sometimes the, our fundamental churches aren't much better than that because they also sometimes have a cookie cutter mentality. And that is, if you don't look like me and if you don't act like me, and if you don't do the same things as me, then you are anathema. So they've got their own rules that they've made up. They've got their own standard of ethics. Don't get me started on the standard of ethics of some of these people because many times it's not even what decent people would ever do. But they've got their own standard. I mean, here it is, man. Man, it's all for the cause of Christ. We're working for Christ. So all is fair in love and war. So we can talk about your pastor. We can denigrate your members. We can try to destroy your church. We can try to steal from you. All's fair in love and war. That's not what Paul's talking about. Go out sometime and look at a, look at a stone building. Just look at a stone building. See, see how many stones that you can count in a stone building that look exactly alike. They don't look all alike. The stones will be all kinds of shapes and all different kinds of sizes. But once those stones are cut, they fit harmoniously into the building. You know, that's also true of a brick building. Now, a brick building, you look at it, all the mortar joints are exactly the same. Every brick looks just like another brick. You have to go by the pattern. I mean, you can't deviate from the pattern in a brick building. Now, maybe that's why Peter said that we are lively stones and not brickheads. Because we're not to be just alike. But that's what some people want. You conform to my look. You conform to my size. You conform to my shape. And if you're like me, then you'll be all right. You just got to be like me. But, you know, here's the real thing about Christianity. Christianity was meant to appeal to all classes of people. It was meant to appeal to all nationalities, all ethnic groups. So by definition, we can never all look alike. 
Now, folks, here's what I'm talking about. If you, th- if you think I'm up here talking about long hair and short skirts and nose piercings, if you think that's the thing I'm talking about, you've missed the point here. Um, you're up here, and we're down here in the deep level for just a moment. I'm talking about Christians, really, who are totally out of step because they want to look and they want to act like somebody else, and that's nothing what they are. That is not their personality. I'm talking about, for instance, preacher kids who, who come out of college and they scream and they yell and they pound the pulpit because that's what Professor so-and-so did, and I've got to be like him. Can you imagine how dull that the Bible would be if that's the way the Bible was written? But you know when you pick up the Bible, what you can do? You can read Paul, and you can identify that as Paul because his writing is different. Read John. Read Peter. And what's God done? He's used the personalities of these people to get his word across. They're not all just alike. And so God doesn't make us all alike. We all all don't need to sound alike. We don't all have to be exactly the same in the church. And here's the fact of the matter. I don't want everybody in the church to be like me in some respects. Um, And why is that? Because there are people that I can't reach that you can. There are people that you appeal to that I don't appeal to. How much easier would it be for Joe's to deal with Indians or, or people who think like him as opposed to people who think like me? I'm not saying we don't think like Brother Joe's, but, but you understand what I'm saying. Um, you, you appeal in a different way to different people. So God's not asking us to be all alike. What God is doing, he's molding us and he's using us. He's taking the talents that we have and he applies those in the work in the church. And so here, here's what happens then, is that your ministry in the church, no matter who you are, it's as valuable as my ministry is. Don't ever think that because you're not a preacher, you don't have a valuable ministry. You certainly do, because God uses the diversity of what we do here to keep the church going. And we also have an idea that every young man who's saved must turn out to be a preacher. But God doesn't want everybody to be a preacher. We've got an idea that every young person uh, that comes out of school has to be sent a thousand miles away to a Bible college. And if you don't go to Bible college, then you are not in God's will. But I don't see that in the Word of God. Maybe God's decision for you is that you stay right in your home church. You work right here where God wants you to be, and you help your own church. Now, here's the thing about it. If God calls you to do that, you do it. By all means, you follow God's calling for your life. You go where He wants you to go. But don't do it because some man told you to do it. Not because I say you have to be like this, and so that's the way you got to be. That's not what God wants us to do. He's using us in different ways in his church. We all don't have to be alike. So we all have our function in the church. Every single member is important individually. In 1 Corinthians, you know, Paul used that other metaphor. He talked about the body in relationship to the church. You know what he said? Not everybody is an eye. Not everybody is an ear. Why is that? Because if everybody was an eye, how would you smell? If everybody was an ear, how would you see? That's what he says. So God puts every member in the church as he needs them for the task that he's called us to do. Church member, you need to remember that. You do. Everybody is important to the ministry. And every part is necessary. And that's one of the reasons why you use the body. Cut off your fingers or your toes and see how well you get along. How well do you walk without toes? How do you pick your nose without a finger? I mean, you got to have it all, don't you? 
So here's how you look at it. I mean, I mean the, 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 the humblest, meekest Christian that you find in a church is every bit as valuable as the most rambunctious, loudmouth super saint. They're all necessary in God's work. We need them all. But now let's go on. We're not all identical, but I want you to notice next here that all the parts are hand-picked. We might not all be alike, but we've been hand-picked. The builder picked us. I mean, have you ever watched a stonemason? You know, a stonemason will pick up stones and he'll decide which of those stones, which particular ones he wants to use in the building. And if there's a stone there he doesn't like, he tosses it aside. He doesn't use that stone. But he picks up a stone and he fashions it. He, he hammers on it. He chisels it, down, chisels it down in order to make it fit in the building. That's the right of the master builder. He has the right to pick the stones that he wants. And so he decides very carefully which ones he wants and which ones he doesn't. Now let's go back to that brick example for just a moment. One brick is just as good as another brick. Doesn't make any difference which one you pick up. All the bricks look exactly alike, so you can blindfold yourself and stick them in the wall if you want to. But that's not what God does. You know, it tells us in the, in the Word of God that when, when they built the temple in Jerusalem, it said there wasn't the sound of a hammer on that building site. I mean, everything was so perfectly done, all those massive stones so perfectly picked and so perfectly molded, that they fit in exactly where they were supposed to go. Everything was precise. And that's the way God does with the church. He puts it right in there where it's supposed to be, and it fits perfectly. So when God builds the church, not just anybody's going to do. Now, hear what I'm trying to say here. Who is it that he builds the church out of? Folks, it's the ones who have been redeemed, the ones who have been blood-bought, the ones who are given by the Father to the Son and have been redeemed. They're the ones that are paid for. And every one of them, they're placed in the correct position that God wants them to be. And then when all of them are placed exactly where they're supposed to be, what do you have? God's beautiful building. Paul says, "...in whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit." Now, I want to finish the message tonight. We've, got, we've had three parts to this message. So we're going to finish it up tonight. Let's quickly look at the third point. We've discussed foundation and framework. Next, we want to talk about the focus of the church. And there's three areas that I want to address in the focus of the church. I'll be brief because I've touched on these all already in other parts of the sermon. But what is the first area of our focus? Well, the first area is regeneration. We have to focus on regeneration. And what that means is we've got to have the proper kind of evangelism. We evangelize people in order that people might be regenerated. Now, if we go back to our study in Acts that we just finished up in the early part of this year, remember we had 102 sermons on Acts, and I know you know what every one of those sermons was about. You remember all of them, I'm sure. But if you go all the way back to the very beginning of the series, the third message that I preached was Jesus' last day on earth. And I know you remember this point. I'm sure all of you do. One of the points in the sermon is, is that Jesus has given his followers a task. There's a task given to believers. And the task that was given to them was to be witnesses. And when Jesus gave that task, he said this. He said, after that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And what he was speaking about was the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. He said, you're ready for this when the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And folks, that's an all-important factor. The Holy Spirit is the one who has to equip us for this ministry. He has to prepare us to go out and do it. And so the Holy Spirit is one who leads and guides and directs us in order to give the word out. 
But that's not all that he does. No, some people think that's the end of the responsibility for the Holy Spirit and regeneration. But oh no, no. Because the Holy Spirit's also working on the other end out here. And that is that he's preparing the hearts of people to hear the message that's being preached. And if the Holy Spirit has not prepared the heart, we can talk to her blue in the face and it'll never do any good. So he prepares us and he prepares them. And when the Holy Spirit has worked in that heart, that's when you give the gospel to a person, that's when they believe. The Holy Spirit is working on both ends of the occasion, uh, of, the, of the situation. You see, here, here's something that's going on in the soul that you can't see. You can't hear this. You can't touch this. It's completely unknown to us in one sense of the word. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 8, when he talked about the wind blowing where it wills. You can't, can't tell where it comes from or where it goes. And he said, so is the Spirit of God. And in essence, that's what he says. So there's a secret work that's going on. We can't see it, but the Holy Spirit is there. And when he prepares that heart for the message, that's when regeneration takes place. But you can't have regeneration without the gospel. You can't have it without us who take the word to people and preach to them. So these things go hand in hand. Our focus is regeneration. The second thing that we focus on in the church is doctrine. And really, that's the second part of the Great Commission. Now, we've talked about doctrine, haven't we? I mean, we had two messages about doctrine. What's the first doctrine that a new convert learns about? It's the doctrine of baptism. That's the first thing that that you do when you get saved. A person is supposed to be baptized because baptism is the outward confession of what's happened in our heart. In the New Testament, baptism was always the first thing that they did and that's how they showed that they were believers in Christ. So we haven't properly fulfilled the Great Commission until we baptize people. But then that's not the only doctrine that's in the Word of God because the commission goes on and it has a third part to it. It says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And so what does that mean? It means that we have a responsibility to get all the way into this book. We're to know this book because this is the book that contains all of the commands that God wants us to have. Right here is contained everything that God wants us to know about him. The full revelation of everything that God wants us to know is right here. And you won't find it anywhere else. There are no other writings that reveal anything about God that you don't find right here. There are no extra revelations. It's all right here. That's all we need. And so we learn the word of God. Now, Jesus said that eternal life is this. And he summed it up in this. Eternal life is this, to know God. And so why do we talk about more things than just how a person gets saved? Or why do we talk about more things than just baptism or that you need to go to church or just responsibilities like that? Why do we teach the other doctrines of the Word of God? Because these are the things that reveal God to us. They help us to know more about Him. Jesus said eternal life is to know God. And so that's why we spend so much time talking about all these other doctrines. Some people would like to stop at salvation and say, Preacher, preach a salvation message every single Every single Sunday, every single sermon, and I'll be happy because that's all I want to hear. That's all you want to hear, then you haven't got the full depth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're still stuck up here somewhere, and you'll never live a fulfilled Christian life until you get down into the Word and you'll learn something about God. Now, the uh, third thing that we need to focus on, the third thing is holiness. Now, our text verses said here in the end of verse 21 that this is a beautiful building that grows into a holy temple. 
Now, here, here's the truth of the matter, folks. When you have been regenerated, and when you have been indoctrinated, then you will be separated. You have to have those things. You'll never want to be a separated Christian until you come to the place that you know the Lord. First, obviously, you have to have that. Secondly, you have to be indoctrinated with the Word of God so you know these things. And when you know them, I don't have to give you a list of rules to follow. I don't have to tack something up on the wall and says, you can do this, you can't do that. You can do this, you can't do that. You've got to wear this, you can't wear that. Your hair's got to be this long instead of that long. You've got to have an ear piercing over here but not one over here. Whatever all that stuff is. I don't have to tell you those things. You know why? Because you've been indoctrinated. And you get separated and you know what the Holy Spirit wants you to do. So I don't have to lead you around by the nose on those kinds of things. So you get separate from the world and there's holiness. Here's what the psalmist said. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. You know what God's most concerned about in the church? He's concerned about purity. And that's because we can't carry on God's work without purity. If you go back to the Old Testament, the temple and and the tabernacle, the high priest wore this miter on his head. And right on that miter was a headband that said, Holiness to the Lord. And it's right on the headband. You know why? Because that's the thing that's supposed to be on his mind. Holiness to the Lord. And Peter says that we are a royal priesthood. And we also have a responsibility to be holy. That holiness should be on our minds. You know what some people think about the church? They think that the most important thing in the church is how many people go there. You know, I get in that habit sometimes. I mean, that's almost always the first question that I ask somebody when I meet them. They're talking about their church. I say, how many people go there? But the Lord's not interested in how many people go there. What the Lord is interested in is who does he have there? What's the holiness and the purity of the people that are there? Not the number of people that are there. You remember this fellow who came running up to Jesus? And he said, Jesus, I will follow you anywhere. You know what we would have done? We would have signed him up right then. We would put another notch in our belt. But you know what Jesus said? Jesus backed him up a little bit and he very sternly said to him, Think about what you're doing. He said, Foxes have dens. And he said, Birds have nests. But I don't have a place that I can lay my head. You need to think about what you're doing. Following Jesus requires serious resolve. It requires self-denial. It requires holiness. Now, here's the last statement for your listening sheet tonight. We'll be done. The Holy Spirit will mold us perfectly into God's beautiful building. Now, let me go back once again to our study of Acts. We learned so much about the church in Acts because that's where we learn about the empowering of the church. Uh, It tells us about the development of the church, how the church was built. But in the second chapter of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, the Bible says in verses 1 through 4, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Now do you see what it says here? They were in one accord. And when they were in one accord, that's when the Holy Spirit came. What does that mean? They were in agreement. Now, let me tell you something else about working together in the church. We need to talk about doctrine. I mean, surely we need to talk about doctrine. But I also believe that we ought to be settled in our doctrine. 
Back there in 1 Kings in the building of the temple, I mentioned that there was no sound of a hammer while that temple was being assembled. There was no clamoring going on. And what we don't need is clamoring and arguing over things that we should have already settled a long time ago. We're to know the vital truths of the Scripture, and we're to be settled in those things. So what Paul has done here, we're finishing out these first two chapters, and what Paul has done, he's laid out a feast of doctrine for us. And the thing for us to do is just simply believe what he said. Let's don't try to explain it away. Let's don't try to figure out ways that he may not have meant what he actually said. I believe he meant everything that he said, just like he said it. And that's what we're to believe. And so when the Holy Spirit comes and works with us as a church, when we receive the Word of God without hesitation, and when all of us are one accord in the body of Christ. I'm glad I'm a part of God's beautiful building. It's a blessing like none other that you'll ever have. Praise the Lord for God's beautiful building. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to preach your word tonight. We ask you, Lord, that you might draw us closer to you through the words of this message and through the reading of the scripture. Lord, be with us as we go our ways tonight. And we thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. And we praise your name for this in Jesus' name. Amen.